So I recently did an episode about impaired nurses and about maybe what I called a, a bit of a dirty little secret that happens within nursing and healthcare professionals, but being that I am a nurse, I tend to make things a little bit more specific to nursing. And I did have people reach out to me, one of whom is joining me today on this lovely Monday. But in the interest of keeping people anonymous and and protected within their own recovery and everything that goes along with it, we have decided to, to do an alias for uh, my special guest today, going by Carter, I believe, right? Yes. All right. So... We're going to get right into it. I'm still Kim. I'm still a host of a podcast that I think I still call People Are Wild. So just as a bit of a disclaimer for this week's episode, just so you guys know right from the jump, it is going into the world again of addiction, sharing a very personal story. And so just make sure that, you know, to listen with your own discretion regarding that subject matter. And also, uh, specifically for Carter, she is a new mom, so she is actually taking time out of her day during her maternity leave to share this story. Um, So you might hear some coos and and, um, babbles from her little one. And to that I say, well, deal with it because it's a beautiful thing. It's the miracle of life. We were all babies once, I think, most of us. And uh, yeah, so we're going to go kind of like a a part two of a follow-up, if you will. And I'm actually really grateful that you wanted to share your story. I guess we can get right into it. And, and sort of talk about maybe a little bit about your background and then how things sort of began for you in terms of getting to that place of being impaired and, and how, you know, your journey began. Well, uh, do you want me to, to go all the way back? Kind of, uh, I guess, the uh, starting point of what really kind of got me. Um... Yeah, I think it's, a you know, I think it's kind of like... People with nursing and, and healthcare, they see see healthcare providers on a, a certain pedestal, you know. Mm-hmm, and, right. And I think it's important to be like, no, we're real people. So yeah, I mean, as far back as you want to go back, let's let's go back. Let's make the the flashback sound or the waves. I don't know what it is like <laughs> in, the, in the cheesy, corny time time travel things. But yeah, let's let's kind of take it back to the point you can pinpoint. You know, things started. Okay, great. So well, I'm going to go uh, back even a little further than that to start to kind of what the um, underlying issue that I wasn't addressing in my life that kind of led me off off the rails later in life. In uh, 2012, I was 20 and I was pregnant with my first child, a, a boy, and I went into labor on my due date and um, I got to the hospital and unfortunately for some uh, reason or another, my doctors still to this day are kind of unaware of what happened. Um, my son uh, ended up being a full-term stillbirth. And um, being 20 at the time, I didn't really have the, I think in my head, I didn't have either, I didn't have the emotional maturity or um, I really just didn't want to face that or deal with that. So I kind of did what I know how to do best. I just kind of buried that situation and did not allow myself to grieve. Um, I did not want to go through any of the grieving process at all, really just kind of didn't want to deal with it. So I kind of just slapped a a happy smile on my face and kind of just went about my life, which is kind of crazy to say, you know, you you lose a child and you just kind of go about your life. But 
that is how I chose to deal with it at the time. That's really the only thing that could keep me from uh, absolutely crumbling, truly, and no other way to put it, keeping me from wanting to kill myself. So I buried it and went on. I was pre-nursing at the time. I was living at my mom's house and still continuing to go to college and everything. And her plan was when my son was born, she was going to be my nanny for me kind of and help me out so that I could continue to go to school and so that I could finish nursing school. I ended up taking a few months off after he died, though, and um, kind of decided to go a bit of a different route and a little bit less stress applied to an LPN program so that I could kind of just take a bit of a breather. An RN program for me at the time just sounded like a little, a little stressful, a little too much, a little too much that I couldn't handle. So I went an LPN route. Fast forward a bit. I'm in nursing school. I'm doing really well in nursing school, not straight A's because I don't, I, that's a, that's a, a white unicorn that I never accomplished in nursing school. But, um, Solid B's all around, did really, really well. Got A's in my clinical classes. And in 2014, January of 2014, I had some dental work done. And this is um, just shy of two years after my son had died. And I allergic to a number of narcotics. So after my dental work, my dentist, for whatever reason, prescribed me 15 milligram roxycodones. I had a shoot. Yes. I had gotten some veneers put on for my 21st birthday. I gave myself veneers. And so fast forward, I'm 22 now at this appointment. And when they did my veneers, I got an infection up in my sinus cavity. And for a year I had been battling with what I thought was an on and off sinus infection. Finally, it traveled down into my tooth. And I started having really, really bad facial pain and mouth pain. I couldn't lay down. It was interfering with my life. So I finally went to a dentist and they did some x-rays and they were like, you have got a gnarly abscess up in your sinus cavity. And so um, like castaway with, uh, with Tom Hanks. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> but probably like slightly less barbaric. <laughs> yeah, I didn't really use a skate to knock it out. Uh, but You're close the, though, I'm sure. Oh, I was. It was it was unbearable. I didn't, I didn't. And it was, you know, it was right in the front of my face. It was my left, it was my left canine and it was just right in the front of my face. Uh, and, uh, like tooth pain is like the worst. Like, honestly, just as a side note, like as a, when I see people who have mouth pain and tooth pain in the ER, like my heart does go out to you. But at the same time, I, if there existed emergency 24 hour dentists, they would make so much money, like so much money. People oh are yeah, just miserable. It is the it, it is. I mean, I have I have gone through childbirth, and I would rather would go rather through another few hours of childbirth than than that face pain I was having. It was awful. I couldn't eat. Um, it was causing a lot of sensitivity to my tooth, even. But so I had this oral surgery to drain the abscess and um, pull the tooth, and a lot of involved work. My oral surgeon didn't want to have to deal with me calling again, saying I'm in more pain. So I guess she just kind of gave me some high dose stuff right off the bat to uh, keep that from being a a problem. I'm not, I'm not sure of her thinking behind, behind that because it wasn't even in Percocet form. It was just 15 milligram Roxycodones. That's intense. Yeah. Yeah, every and and she gave me a, a two and a half week supply every four to six hours. In the first few days that I was taking them, I 
was truly in pain, truly, truly was just finally like took him and it would relieve my pain enough that I could eat and I could finally sleep. Then it kind of turned into, I think around like week two, I started noticing that I could sleep at night. And it wasn't until uh, later after I got clean that I realized that it was the first time since my son had died that I had had a night that I fully slept through, that I didn't wake up at midnight or two in the morning or that I was struggling to fall asleep. It was for the first time in a few years, I slept. And for me at the time, it was nice. I didn't really put two and two together at the time as to why I was now all of a sudden able to sleep other than I just kind of thought that, oh, I'm not in any pain anymore because I've been having this pain for the last year, this physical pain. I didn't really take a minute to consider that it's also kind of doing a good little number to my emotional pain as well. Right. It's like the whole, your mind can fully shut off. It's not just like, it's the end of the day and now you have your racing thoughts. You actually are like, oh, I'm actually able to close my eyes and like have, like you said, a full night. Yeah. That's how it started. It was just all of a sudden I could sleep and the emotional turmoil that I had been going through the for almost two years that I was just unwilling to face and recognize just kind of it was the later in life a addiction counselor described it as the perfect storm I was emotionally done emotionally checked out and unwilling to kind of face and recognize how just how checked out and how depressed I was and then pretty much on a silver platter was given to me this this medication that will not only ease my physical pain from my tooth, but will really, really, for lack of a better way of putting it, snow my emotional pain and really keep me from having to face or deal with my with my grief. And that was nice. I'd be lying if I didn't say that was one of the best feelings I have ever felt in my life, just not having to think of or deal with my son's death, even if I wasn't, you know, subconsciously dealing with it. And so I uh, went back for a follow-up appointment because my oral surgery was done in about three parts. Um, The second appointment, she prescribed me 10 milligram Roxy's and the third appointment, it was five milligram Roxy's. So were they like titrating uh, you off of it? I'm not sure if if it was a way to titrate me off of it or if it was just because the abscess was getting smaller, so my pain was getting less. So, you know, my pain's not as bad as it was. So here's 10 milligrams. Oh, your pain's even better now. Here's five milligrams. And that was over the course of about six to eight weeks that my oral surgery was kind of spaced out over. Then after I had my oral surgeries, I had another surgery about two months after that. But Two months after my last dentist appointment, I still had some Roxy's left over. So I was still taking them. Um, I was taking them at night. And I was telling myself that I'm taking them at night because it still is painful to lie down. I still have some some pressure and some pain when I lie down. But looking back, I definitely did not have pain. I think I was just enjoying being able to sleep and enjoying that it was knocking me out. Then I had a DNC for some uterine polyps that were discovered at a OB appointment. And 
been having some pain and some issues with that. So I had a DNC to remove the polyps and, um, I'm allergic to Vicodin. I have a anaphylactic response to Vicodin. My tongue swells, my throat swells and everything. So my doctor after that surgery prescribed me Percocets, but in a low dose, it was, um, five milligram Percocets for three days after my surgery. But even that still kind of fueled what was happening. After my Roxy's and my Percocets from my surgeries ran out, I realized that I'm not able to sleep anymore. And I, I'm a smart person. I was in nursing school at the time. I've kind of always been in some form of a healthcare work environment. And I was just completely blind to the fact that not only am I not able to sleep, but I'm, I was going through withdrawals. Um, you know, I was having some night sweats, um, some achy joints, just having some overall general withdrawal symptoms. But to me, all I cared about was, man, that stuff, that stuff, I could sleep. That stuff felt good. That stuff made me be able to sleep. So I started to um, seek it out myself, which turned into me having random injuries that I needed to go to urgent care for. And I always went to an urgent care far away from where I lived so that I wouldn't, wouldn't run into anybody that I knew. So you which, did like doctor shopping. I did, yeah, for, for a little while. But that was really hard. It's harder to do that nowadays. Was, I mean... There's a it lot, was there's a lot more states that are cracking down on it in terms of yes. you know reporting and limiting how much people dispense but I mean it still does happen in mass yeah. quantities too absolutely but I just and I knew that it was a thing that happened but I was just uh I was not lucky enough to find a doctor that would just willy-nilly write me something um, right one urgent care place, a doctor wrote me five milligram Percocets. And, and after that, I came home and I was sitting at home and I was studying for an exam that I had the next day because I'm still in, I'm in nursing school at this point. So were you just real quick, were you using just more, more so at night? At this point, yes. Okay. Just at, just at night, just so I could sleep. You were like, I'm maintaining, I'm good. I'm just using this just as essentially like a sleep aid. I mean, it yeah. just so happens to be a narcotic but it's a sleep aid yeah and it wasn't even in my head it wasn't even I wasn't even thinking like oh I'm I'm spiraling out of control I have issues it was truly just I was rationalizing in my head I need to sleep and this is the one thing that's helping me sleep so if I'm just taking it at night to sleep what's the big deal right it's kind of how I rationalized it but I came home and I was watching an episode of one of my unashamed favorite shows drugs inc (laughs) and the episode that happened to be on at that time was an episode covering the dark net never in my life had i ever heard of the dark net not ever and then all of a sudden this episode is talking about a website called silk road and the dark net and an hour later i have the tour network downloaded on my computer i'm looking around trying to figure out how to get bitcoin because you know, I'm having no luck doctor shopping, so why not just get my Roxy's in a way that I know I'll be able to get them? And that's through the dark net. This episode of Drugs Inc. really not uh, didn't it wasn't really a how to uh, buy drugs, but it truly was. It I mean, the person that they were interviewing pretty much flat out said you can get anything, and it's as easy as placing an online order. So I downloaded the dark net. 
I found out a way to get Bitcoin. And that day I placed an order of about $5,000 worth of 30 milligram Roxy's. And in my head, I went with the 30 milligram Roxy's because that was being economical. I could cut them in fourths and stretch them out. And it was cheaper because at that it was a wholesale price kind of thing when you're shopping around on the dark net. So you're like, you're like doing like the math and budgeting it out and never once realizing like how your thinking is so distorted because you're just like, it's totally fine. Like this is just to help me go to sleep. Yep. And, and at this point, it still was just to help me go to sleep. Three days later, I had at that point in time, they were going about, if I'm remembering correctly, I, w- I would want to say about. $26 a pill for a 30 milligram Roxy on the dark net. But then it kind of spiraled after that. I got them. I think it was within like four days. I started noticing that I'm a little uncomfortable during the day. I'm a little agitated during the day. And before I knew it, I was taking them during the day then as well. Still just, I mean, just completely rationalizing why I'm doing it. You know, it makes me feel better. It gives me energy, this and that. It was. I was just so unwilling to admit that I'm kind of going off the rails here. Well, no, but really, also, why would you? I mean, yeah, you're a healthcare provider, but like to you, you're not seeing it in terms of being out of control. No, not at all. And I was still in nursing school. I'm still maintaining my grades. Um, you know, I'm not skipping out on family events, nothing in my life has changed except for I feel like I can actually participate in my life, which is kind of backwards because I, you know, I, I spent a long time working in addiction nursing after at the end of this journey, I started working in addictions, you know, all of the, all of my patients that I saw coming in, my life was completely different. You know, their addiction led to just everything becoming unmanageable and out of control. And I never thought that I had a problem because in my head, it, it improved my life because I'm no longer worrying about being super tired or depressed. I'm always in a good mood now. I'm not missing out on family things. You know, I'm doing great in school. Um, so there's no way that I have a problem because if I had a problem, then I wouldn't be able to be maintaining my life as it is. Because you were just, again, keeping it to just like using it at night. Right. Well, at this point, even even after I started, you know, using during the day, I still was just deluding myself. And it's fine because it's making me feel better. And I'm able to get stuff done now. I'm able to do stuff. So how could something that is in my head improving my life be bad? And then I my tolerance started to build. So instead of taking one to two, now I'm taking three to four and it's starting to wear off even faster. And so I started kind of using my, my smarts in a not so smart way, but man, how can I make this feel better? Because it's not feeling, it's not making me feel as good as it used to. And, um, totally skipped a step and, um, went straight from taking them orally to, um, injecting them with a needle and, um, went straight to a needle. How did you graduate yourself to that? Like, how did that become like the next logical step? I wish that there was a clear thought in my head or a clear moment in time that I can pinpoint that that became a thing. Looking back and like trying to remember, like when was the last time, when, like when was the very first time that I, that I shot up, that I used a needle? 
And I can't even remember clearly the very first time that I used a needle. I can't even recall what line of thinking led me to that other than my guess is that it didn't feel as good as it as it once did and I wanted to make it feel better. Well, and, maybe because uh, you just knew on like that some some on that level that, you know, if it hits your bloodstream it'll get to you faster. Yeah. And so I uh I had a diabetic cat at the time. Her name was Panda. Ask, where'd you get the needles? I also live in a state where you don't need a prescription to purchase them. Really? And uh, yeah, any pharmacy can refuse to sell them to you if you don't have any kind of medical need for them. But also I live in a state where you can just walk into a pharmacy and ask for insulin needles. And if the pharmacy is willing to sell them to you, they can sell them to you. They keep track of who purchases them in a purchase log and they write down your address and your license, your driver's license number. But that's about it. But I had a, I had a diabetic cat who had an insulin prescription on record at CVS. So I um, just started buying her needles in boxes instead of in bags. I would just buy them boxes at a time. Started using them for myself. And before I knew it, it just kind of spiraled. And I was using with a needle every single day. Going to work. Just, or not going to work. Well, going to like clinicals. Going to school, going yeah. to clinicals. Yeah. And then I um, graduated nursing school in 2016 and I got my nursing license. Oh, 2015. Sorry. I got my nursing license in August of 2015 and got my first job in um, October of 2015. Was it in hospital? It was in a long-term care facility. And I was, that was my full-time job. My Mm -hmm. PRN job was on a med surge floor in the hospital, but I was only working my PRN job maybe once every other week. I was working my long-term care job four or five days a week, depending on the, depending on the week, how many shifts I picked up. But it was a brand new building. It had just opened. I opened with the facility. Uh, We had a very small staff. We had a very small patient load. It was very, very low stress job. And I was very good at hiding my use. Within the first six weeks of Working at that facility, the medical director, we had what are like kind of the best way I can put it is like a a company version of the Daisy Award. Mm -hmm. Um, Like and within the first six weeks of working as a brand new nurse, I had been given that award. Um, So I, again, like saw no issue with. With how I was living my life and how I was going about life, because I. I'm clearly good at my job. I'm winning. You know, I won this award. I get high praise from the medical director of the facility all the time. I get high praise from my patients. My patients' families love me. My med surge job is my med surge job is going really well. I'm, you know, I'm constantly being um, reassured at that job that I'm, you know, doing really well, especially for a new nurse and for it being my first nursing job, et cetera, et cetera. So just really seeing no issue with how I was living. So I think I like put it in the one thing that I sent to you. We you know had our back and forth um, mm-hmm. about how, so I had read this article and I hadn't necessarily mentioned it in the initial episode, but in, in doing research, you know, obviously I, I personally had worked with a nurse that was impaired, um, but also from the accounts that I had read to, to do research, it talked about how, 
I mean, you know, in my example, you know, his name was Eric and, uh, he would, he would pick up shifts. He was a team player. He was like this go-getter. He was like this awesome guy that patients loved him. And in the one article I read, it talked about how part of the reason why that at least for that nurse, when they shared their story, he was telling, uh, talking about how he was so laid back and patients loved him because he was so high. Like he was just constantly writing like this mellow sort of like in this space where everything's fine because he was, he was high. So, I mean, did, did you kind of think similarly, like looking back on it, that that was part of the reason too, is that you had it in check, but you also like just were writing on that high. I, yeah, probably. I mean, uh, I can attribute a lot of it to it. It put me in a great mood and right. being in a, in such a good mood. It made me, it made me feel motivated. It made me feel like I could get everything done. I had all of this energy. I had all of this, you know, just motivation, I guess is the best way I can put it. And it seems kind of strange because, you know, I'm using a narcotic that is a CNS depressant and, you know, makes people nod off and kind of makes you sleepy. But it's strange because when I was using, I, it, it kind of made me feel the opposite. You know, I was mellow to a certain point, but I was never, I never felt tired or sleepy or unproductive. I always just felt like I could just get things done. I just felt like I could do everything. And, um, you probably didn't sweat like all the small stuff because I mean, that wasn't where your mindset was at. Like, where was right. your mindset? Were you, I mean, can, can you, or do you feel comfortable like saying where you got your meds from? I mean, were you dipping into patient supplies? No, no. I so never, at least you didn't do that. I was, um, that's kind of, illegal. I was, I mean, it's kind of bad anyways, but I'm pretty sure that's yeah. kind of illegal. Yeah. It's very, very illegal. It's uh, di- <laughs> diverting, it'd be diverting. The cool, um, yes, the, the the big sexy term, diverting. Yes, diverting. Um, at this point in time, nope, still just uh, using the dark net. I had um, part of that perfect storm of my emotional emotional vulnerability and a doctor kind of giving me um, unknowing to them where my emotional state was and that it would lead me down this path, uh, kind of my solution on a silver patter. Um, part of that perfect storm is that I come from a family that had set up a trust fund for me. And so, um, at this point in time, I had access to hundreds of thousands of dollars and these pills are very expensive. And so I mean, for if me, it's like $5,000, how much, how much would $5,000 worth last you? Like in your height, would you say? In my height of using probably about five days. That's an expensive you- habit. It was, uh, it was very expensive. And because I graduated, as I say, to a needle, my tolerance really went out the window then. If I thought my tolerance built quickly when I was, you know, taking them orally, when I switched to a needle, my tolerance really just skyrocketed because it, it hits you fast and it leaves you fast. So um, it's just like you had to keep chasing that high. Constantly. Because being, I mean, that's what they always say, like, for I, I see it, you know, with people who leave the hospital, that it's worse to go through withdrawals, at least from narcotic, dope, smack, whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, it's better for them to 
get back out there, get to their drug of choice than to go through those withdrawals sometimes in their thinking. So, I mean, I'm sure that it was just like, and I always kind of go back to the example of the coworker I worked with where we would see him go to the bathroom numerous times during the shift, but you wouldn't really think anything of it because he was doing his job like you. I mean, he was on that level of sort of, like you said, like a Daisy Award exemplary employee, a model employee, which is kind of like one of those things looking back on it, you're like, oh, at the same time, you know, they have, you have that work ethic where you're just like, oh yeah, I want to help you with this, that, and the other. And of course I'll pick up shifts and, oh, you need to switch this and that. That's totally fine. Don't even worry about those hours. Like, mm-hmm. I just, I just would think that, um, you know, when you're caught in this, you're just, I, I think at a certain point you think, like you said, that you have everything maintained, but I mean, it's got to unravel and it's got to unravel kind of fast, right? Oh yeah, it 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 definitely will will get to a point where it will unravel. Um, you can when you're living like this and you're constantly having to be secretive and lie and you know do things that you wouldn't normally do. It's gonna get to a point where you just get exhausted of living like that and you slip. So, um, so what was one of like what were the things I, I think I told you, I was like, what was your come to Jesus moment? But maybe there were a few of them building up. So, um, I really only had one because up until, up until this one point, my life was perfectly manageable. Like I, like it was manageable until it wasn't. And, um, it was in May of 2016. So I had in, in the span of my lifetime, my using history was short lived. Um, about two years, just a little over two years is how long I spent using. In those two years, my life really spiraled out of control. I I blew through almost about $500,000 on drugs. My one drug of choice was Roxy 30 milligrams. It's pretty much the only thing I ever, ever used when I was using. I never even drank because I was scared of mixing alcohol with the opiates that I was taking. So in some part of your brain, like there was that thing where you're like, okay, but I'm not going to drink. Yep. Uh, I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to ever, no matter how much cheaper it is, I'm never going to do heroin. I'm never going to substitute. I never took anything else. If I ran out of, if I ran out of Roxy's and I started to withdraw, then I just kind of sat in withdrawal until I could get more Roxy's. I was really stubborn, but it was my way of rationalizing my use. So would you it almost be like, way. you you like deserve this punishment? Like, would it be kind of like that thinking? Not really. It was, I think in my head, it was more of, if I was an addict, if I was truly addicted to substances, then I would be using anything and everything I could get my hands on. So if I'm just sticking to this one, and if I'm not substituting it for other things, then it's fine. I'm not, so I don't have you're a in control. Like, somehow yeah. you still have this like semblance of control. Over, yes, exactly. over that drug because it's only that and, drug, right? And I uh, and I have control issues in my life, and this is just one. This is just one other way that I'm trying to control factors in my life that truly I have no control over. So I uh, my my come to Jesus was when I did that one thing that in my head is probably the the biggest moment of shame in my life. Like this is I've I've done a lot of made a lot of bad decisions in my life, a lot of poor choices, but this is the one thing that, you know, I, it took me a very long time to even admit to my family that I had done it 
to say it out loud at even at NA meetings where, you know, it was supposed to be a safe place and stuff. It was around Mother's Day in 2016. And uh, Mother's Day is my, it's, it's kind of my one day year that I really allow myself to, to cry and to kind of pity. It's my pity day for, for my son's death. It's, it's the one day where I am allowed to feel sorry for myself, that I allowed myself to feel sorry for myself and that I allowed myself to lay in bed and cry and do nothing and be sad. Um, that's my one day a year that I gave myself to do that. And I got a call from my scheduling supervisor. She was like, you know, you're on the schedule today. And I said, no, I'm not. I requested the whole week that Mother's Day, like I think it was like Wednesday or something. I was like, I requested this whole week off the Wednesday before Mother's Day. I was like, I requested that Wednesday to Wednesday off. She was like, no, you're you're on the schedule. And I said, I have the paperwork at home approving to be off. My scheduling supervisor said, no, you need to come in. Another kind of perfect storm situation. I had run out of pills that morning and I had more being being mailed to me. They were in the mail. They'd be delivered the next day. But for this one day, I it was a Tuesday, I had no pills. And so I was going to have to kind of go through withdrawal for a little bit before my pills came in the next day on that Wednesday. So I get to work and I'm in a bad mood because it's around Mother's Day. It's my one time that I allow myself to be sad and feel. And I'm mad because I'm being called into work. I'm just in a grumpy mood because part of withdrawing is not feeling well and just being in a very, very agitated, easily agitated. And that's the state of mind that I was in. I generally worked evenings at this facility, evenings and nights. I went in during days and there's a lot of management there during days and I'm not used to what management does during the days and everything. And it had been like two hours since I'd been at work and I was grumpy to the point where I, I didn't want to be at work. I Nothing really was clicking for me that day. And I was doing med pass and I realized that one of the patients was had uh, oxy had Roxy 20s PRN for pain every four hours. And so I uh, looked at when he'd had it last and it had been about two and a half hours. And so I was like, well, I'll just sign one out for him, then take it and it'll get me through the rest of the four hours of this shift. And then I'll go home and my supply will come in tomorrow and it'll be no problem. So I uh, signed the pill out of the NARC book and I took the pill and went to his room like I was going to give it to him, just went in and kind of checked on him, walked out of his room and went to go take it in the bathroom, but uh, got sidetracked with another patient uh, helping a CNA turn and change another patient. And while I was doing that, my NARC drawer, there was a management did a count of my NARC drawer and nothing was out, nothing was off count. But the mistake I made was pulling that narcotic about an hour and a half too soon. I think that in my head, I was, I, I got called into my manager's office and I, uh, she just was going to write me up for a med error. Um, I sat down in her office and she had the NARC book and the, the card of Roxy's on her desk. And she was just going to write me up for a med error because she was like, you gave this an hour and a half too soon. She's going to write me up as a med error. And I think that it was, I was tired. 
I think I had finally, without noticing it until I walked into her office, I was really freaking tired of having to live this way because I was finally at a point where I couldn't, at this point in time on that day where I was with my using was that I couldn't go more than four hours without putting a needle in my arm. If I went more than four hours without putting a needle in my arm, I would start vomiting. I would get shaky. I would start sweating. Uh, The yawning, the sneezing, the runny nose, it would all hit me like a freight train if I went more than four hours. And that was at night. I would wake up at night in sweats and I would have to use in the middle of the night. And so once that door closed of her office, I broke down and I didn't even give her a chance to say that she was going to write me up for a med error. I just looked at her and I said, I took it. I'm sorry. And she looked at me and she goes, what? Like she was confused on what I was talking about because in her head, all she was going to do was all she was there to do was write me up for a, a simple med error. I just looked her dead in the eyes and I, I confessed. I told her I took it. I was, I, this is what's going on. I'm, I'm, I'm tired. I, this is hor- I, I just, I need help. And I think the looking back, the not funniest part of the story, but just the, the weirdest part of the story is that I had taken the pill from the card decks, but I still had not ingested the pill. It was still in my pocket. I hadn't even had a chance to actually physically take it yet. It was still in my pocket. So I sat in her office and I sobbed and I cried and I kind of just hit a wall where I was just exhausted, absolutely exhausted. I was ashamed. So I, I resigned from my position that day, despite her begging me to not resign um, because that company had a policy. I could take a 90 day leave of absence to get help and turn myself into our state's nurses abstinence program and go under state under monitoring with the state board of nursing and then um, return back to my job on, on probation. I told her, no, I couldn't do that. I need, I need to quit. I need to, I need to take a step back from my life and reevaluate literally everything. So she said, okay. So I called my fiance at the time and he came and picked me up from work to give you an idea of how meticulous I was with my using and how good I was at hiding my addiction. I was living with my fiance. We lived together. Um, We had been together for years at that point and he had no idea that I was using. Um, Nobody in my family had any idea that I was using. So when he came and picked me up from work, I got in the car and I started sobbing and broke down and told him everything. It was, he got hit out of left field with that. So then I went home that day and my manager told me that she was going to give me a week to um, turn myself in to our state um, assistance program. And if I hadn't turned myself in within a week, then she was going to call and report me. Being reported versus uh, turning yourself in. If you're reported, then the state board gets notified. The board of nursing gets notified and uh, you have the potential to put your license for your license to be put on probation. If you self-report, it remains confidential. And as long as you are not um, dealing with anything legal wise that would involve the state board, then it, your monitoring is done independent from the state board. So I was never in trouble with the board of nursing. My license, there was no action ever taken against my license or anything like that. The facility didn't press charges for me. They could have pressed charges because I technically stole the pill. 
but they didn't because I hadn't ingested the pill yet. Yeah, I, I gave it to her in her office and, and my manager talked to the administrator of the facility and basically they came to the conclusion that they didn't want to press charges because they didn't think that anything legal would make a difference here. What would make a difference was me getting in touch with the um, assistance program and getting help. And so I had a week to turn myself in to um, the assistance program. And I also had a new shipment of pills that came in. So at this point, I got smacked in the face with, uh, you do have a problem. That was my, oh shit. When did I let myself get this out of control? Because until I was standing in my manager's office crying and admitting to it all, I had no point thought that I was out of control until I did the one thing that I told myself when, um, when this all kind of started to happen that I would never do. I promised myself that I would never do anything illegal to get pills. I would never buy them off the street. I don't know why, I don't know why in my head buying them from the dark net is any better than buying them off the street, but it was again, another way to rationalize that I had it under control and that I didn't have a problem being faced with the fact that I had now just done something that I promised and told myself I wouldn't do. And then just also saying out loud, finally to someone confiding in someone just how many pills I was doing and, and, you know, and, and how bad it had gotten. It was finally my, Oh shit, I'm out of control moment. And so I got those pills in the mail that next day. And second most shameful thing in my life is that I spent the next week doing them. I stayed at home and I threw myself a pity party and I did all the pills that I ordered. And then on the last day that I was able to, I called the um, assistance program and I uh, gave them all my information and I turned myself in. Two days later, I was sitting in an addiction specialist, addiction counselor's office being evaluated um, to find out what kind of monitoring I would need. I went to the program sent me to three different addiction specialists because the first one that I went to diagnosed me with a depressive disorder pretty much in his evaluation letter stated that I don't have an addiction problem. I have a depressive disorder that I'm self-medicating the best way that I know how. They wanted to double make sure that that was accurate. So they sent me to two different addiction specialists. Um, I was, for the first time in my life, 100% honest with how much I had been using, how much money I had spent, how everything. The conclusion from all three was that I have a depressive disorder and I would benefit most not from addiction therapy or from inpatient rehab or anything like that. I would benefit most from grief counseling. I got copies of all the letters from the addiction specialist that I went to and I followed their recommendation after I went through acute withdrawal, which um, was about a full 10 days of hell absolute hell. I have never in my life felt so sick. Even after my son died, I not once contemplated killing myself after my son died. When I was going through withdrawal, I I do not think there was a single day that I did not think of every way I could just go ahead and kill myself to put myself out of this misery because I felt like I was stuck between a rock and a hard place, feeling this miserable or or using again. And I didn't want to use again. 
I didn't want to destroy my life even more than I felt I'd already destroyed it. But I also did not want to feel this sick. I spent those days absolutely just crying and mustering all the strength I had to not use and uh, to just make it through. And so once I finally got through the acute withdrawal and could um, kind of emerge from my house and, and be a part of society again, uh, the very first thing I did was make an appointment with a grief counselor. And I went through um, intensive grief counseling, which sucked because my son's death that I had been shoving down and repressing for like four years now, I had to, I had to relive it. Every single feeling that I refused to feel four years prior, um, I had to live it now and I had to feel it now. And um, that sucked. That really, really sucked. Grief counseling was the one thing that, that, that truly saved my life. And the recommendation from the assistance program, I had to undergo six months of random drug tests. And I had to um, attend four NA meetings a month. So just pretty much go to one NA meeting a week. And so I, I did that. I found a home group and um, went to my home group once a, once a week, went to grief counseling once a week, completed all my drug tests, passed all my drug tests, stayed clean for those six months, no issues. That was back, um, I got clean in June of 2016, and I have been clean ever since. For a long time, I didn't understand in NA that being clean meant that I couldn't drink anymore either because I never had, in my head, I never had a problem with alcohol. I've never abused alcohol. I rarely drink at all when I did drink. And I thought it just meant staying clean from from Roxy's, which was no issue because after I went through grief counseling, that that mental part in my head that when I was withdrawing and before I'd went through grief counseling and stuff, that mental part that kept telling me, man, a, a Roxy would just feel real good right now. I bet that would make you feel real good right now is this mental voice that I had. After I went through grief counseling, that, that voice kind of quieted and kind of went away. Once I kind of made peace with my inner demons and kind of worked through all of that. And when I went back to read the the letter from the addiction specialist, it kind of, that kind of made sense as to, you know, not being diagnosed with the disease of addiction or whatever, but just trying to self-medicate away some pain, which I have a, a lot of people that, that I have encountered that told me, that tell me that I am delusional, that there is no way that I am not an addict. And then I have other people tell me that there's a difference between an opiate dependency and an addiction. So, you know, I kind of struggle a little bit still to this day with, am I an addict or was I truly just self-medicating? And it got to a point where uh, self-medicating felt better than going through withdrawals. And I, I, I don't know, maybe it's a combination of both. But what I do know is that to this day, I'm, you know, not taken a single opiate since then, except for I, I had a surgery and fentanyl was part of the anesthesia, but, and when I had an epidural, fentanyl was part of my epidural. But um, other than those two controlled settings, I've never, I haven't had any opiates. I haven't um, had, I haven't abused or misused drugs in any way. I've had a few glasses of champagne since I've gotten clean, which 
uh, to some people is technically a relapse. My sponsor and I discussed it after it happened. It was both times was was at a, a wedding toasting to the couple at the wedding. And my sponsor and I both came to the conclusion between the two of us that in my road to recovery, those glasses of champagne didn't count. Not that they didn't count as a relapse, but they didn't lead to my life becoming unmanageable. They didn't put me down a bad path. So we never changed my clean date from that. But my journey is uh, is very different than a lot of addicts. I know a lot of nurses in recovery that you know, they, they do not drink, they, they, they will not drink, they will not do anything. And I in no way advocate that if, if you, you know, were using to self-medicate a problem or whatever, then you're free to go ahead and drink again or whatever. I think that that's one of the um, biggest things that I've noticed in NA is that I guess people don't take kindly to that in NA. They um, don't really accept that I've had a a little bit of champagne here and there and that it didn't spiral into something else or lead to something else that it was just that one glass of champagne or whatever but that's something that I kind of personally still struggle with on if I'm truly an addict or not but I do know that my life is in a good place now Um, I still go to um, my home group meetings it's on Monday nights I'll be going to it tonight and I'm I'm working I well right now I'm on maternity leave but um, I have a, a wonderful full-time job that I excel in. I don't think that my work ethic has changed at all. Now that I kind of can look at how I, the kind of employee that I was when I was using and the kind of employee that I am when I'm sober, it's really weird to say and it's really it feels really strange to say, but I, for myself personally, don't see a huge difference. At my current job, I still work the same number of hours that I was working at my previous job. I still feel like I'm highly motivated in my job that I, I work just as hard as I did. I think that the only, the only thing that's different is that I complain a little bit more at my current job. I think I get a little annoyed easily sometimes at certain things, but I think that kind of comes with the territory. But yeah, I think that's, that's pretty much my, my journey. So what do you, I always ask people this, like, what do you want anybody listening, you know, healthcare provider, not a healthcare provider, whoever stumbles upon, you know, our discussion, what do you want them to take away from your experiences and your journey? A few things. I think whether someone is dealing with an addiction, a substance issue or not, if you have any kind of repressed feelings, it sucks to have to deal with them years later. At my job that I'm working with, I that I'm at now, I work with young adults, adolescents and young adults. And the thing that I tell them is that when I share my my story of of substance use with them, the biggest thing that I tell them is that if you're using to suppress feelings or even it doesn't even have to be using drugs and alcohol to suppress feelings. If you are, you know, the kind of person that eats their feelings or buries their feelings or whatever, like eventually your feelings are going to catch up with you. You know, you're going to have to be you're going to have to deal with them sooner rather than later. I mean, and the sooner that you do deal with them, the better it's going to be for you, because having to. Having to deal with it down the road, it's just gonna, it, in my head, it's 10 times worse because. You've you've already done so much damage with how you've chosen to cope in the meantime, as far as if there are any nurses that are listening and that are battling quietly 
in private, in secret, an addiction that they think is not impacting their work, impacting their their social life and their family life. The biggest piece of advice I can give you is that your life is manageable until it's not. It's going to get to a point where it's just going to take one slip, one day where you're just a little tired, where you've had just a little too much in life or whatever, you're dealing with a little too much that you're going to slip. And that slip is going to lead to unmanageability. I'm lucky to say that my slip just was going to lead to me getting a med error. But my slip could have easily been that I was, you know, overthinking things, moving too quickly at work, not fully 100% there. And, you know, we work in healthcare. We we work in a setting where we're, we're responsible for people's lives occasionally, uh, you know, regularly, every day. And one slip up can can mean the difference between a patient dying and a patient living. And so even if you think that you've got everything under control because, you know, you're doing really well at work, no one notices that you have a problem. I promise you that there is not a person, there is not a single healthcare worker that has ever been able to get away with this forever, that can manage and keep up with this lifestyle forever because it will eventually catch up to them and it will catch up in a bad way. And also just, I think my, my desire to share my story is to kind of remove some, some of the shame that I personally feel from it because I, I feel judged a lot where I currently work. I work with a lot of nurses that have, um, the disease of addiction that are, that are in recovery. I work in a very, very safe environment, but, um, I think if I worked anywhere else, I think if any any nurses found out that, you know, I had a a, pro, a substance problem in the past and that I, you know, almost diverted or whatever, technically did divert, but didn't get to actually take the pill or whatever. I feel like I would be that coworker that people are always looking over their shoulder at me. People are always keeping an extra eye on me. Management is always keeping an extra eye on me. And so I think that from coming and sharing my story, I want to help to remove some of the stigma and some of the shame because, you know, even, even though I'm a nurse, I am still just a person and, and I'm, I'm human. And any nurse that has a, a substance use disorder or that has a abuse substances in the past or is abusing substances, they're, they're just that they're human. And we can't be held to a higher standard than other people, in my opinion. I mean, we're, we're just as human as anybody else. And I think being able to remove some of the shame can also lead to those nurses reaching out and and getting help if they feel that they're in the environment where it's safe to do so, you know, that could be the difference that saves their life or saves their career is if they feel safe to reach out to someone without being shamed or ostracized or whatever. I think that's kind of the main stories that are the main lessons that I want out of this or whatever. <laughs> yeah, no. And, you know, I totally um, agree. I, I think that it's so important in so many aspects to remove the stigma and the stigma, break the stigma, whatever hashtag worthy phrase it is. <laughs> to communicate and have an open discussion, you know, like we are right now, that's 
non-judgmental, not critical, just talking mm-hmm. about the journey that we go on. I mean, you're incredibly brave for sharing your story. At the same time, too, you know, you are currently working uh, in in the profession and in healthcare. And again, like I said, you know, we're we're taking some some precautions in terms of keeping things somewhat vague in order to protect the people you work with as well as yourself and your family. Um, right. But at the same time, you know, people who know you on a personal level and you share that story with them, it increases the discussion to be like, oh, my gosh, that happens to, excuse me, to my friend or, you know, to a person that I can identify with. And I think once you put like a name or a face or you have a personal connection, be it through your own experience or your friend or family it just, it changes your whole mindset. And I've told this to people before that in starting this whole podcast, I kind of was a challenge to myself underlying to connect more with people across the spectrum as patients, as family members, as providers. Mm -hmm. And it's like, there's a lot of commonalities that I've seen emerge in terms of people advocating for themselves in, in diagnoses um, as patients and as family members. And then now, you know, I'm kind of going to be going more towards the the providers and sort of opening it up to like what it's like to work in healthcare, you know, doing things like this and discussing things that maybe people hear about or see dramatized on, you know, media or TV shows or whatever. Like what mm-hmm. about the real stuff behind it? So when, when, like you said, you have the discussion and, Again, you you reached out to me and I was totally taken aback. I was just like, absolutely, whatever you want to do, like this is this is your platform to share your story. And again, I am super humbled and grateful that you did share your story. And I congratulate you on your continued recovery and and clean living. Um, I know I, I know personally how hard that can be. So. Like, I give you nothing but praise on that and congratulations. So I guess I, I, the, the last thing, you know, that, that I have to ask, and I did prep you for it, is a hot dog a oh. sandwich. Ah! <laughs> I got to like, a even little had, bit of a light note, right? Like, we were super I, serious. This I even had time to prep, and I still can't. I, like, it's a, it's a tricky None question wrong. because it... So Oscar Continue Meyer, on. like, sorry, Oscar Meyer, like a couple weeks ago, came out and just like blew up the internet better than Kim Kardashian and <laughs> said that a hot dog is a sandwich. Now, in my family, in my immediate family, my extended family, we've had like this underlying joke where we talk about like, is a hot dog a sandwich? It's like a question, you know, people ask mm-hmm. each other and stuff. That's that's how you weed out whether or not you know you want to be friends with somebody or invest in a relationship with them. You know, you ask them. <laughs> dog a sandwich and then depending on their answer that dictates whether or not you go forward with it and it's always been like this funny joke but then when oscar meyer decided to speak the the truth i don't know i don't know what pedal like what platform they stand on i guess because they they make a lot of hot dogs like the internet blew up and i've realized like everyone was sending me a link to the article and i was like wow this is incredibly weird that I'm associated with that but also uh, you know let's let's end it with a little bit of lightheartedness because I don't know man the sandwich uh, well there is a sandwich hierarchy power chart and in it it talks about how 
is it wrap a sandwich? Oh, see, I think that that's a harder, I think that that's a harder question than is a hot dog a sandwich because I I feel like, I feel like maybe a hot dog is because it is, it's meat between bread. So it's true. It's technically, technically. And you could could put like different stuff in it. Exactly. But I, sandwich or not, hot dogs are just amazing in general. So I don't really think it matters how you categorize them. I just want to eat them. I don't (laughs) know, man. Like an ice cream sandwich, I think just breaks all the rules. I, I, I'll agree with you on that one. Mm-hmm. That's a, it's a little out there, but I, I think technically a hot dog, I'm going to have to go with it is as, as wrong as it sounds and as weird as it is to say, I'm going to have to agree that a hot dog is a sandwich. See, I still stand a little undecided. I feel like I lean towards yes. And then like somebody in my family or friends is like, well, actually, and then I go, Ooh, you have a good point. <laughs> And I go back towards being, like, moderate with my sandwich views. If you just look up the definition of a sandwich, it's an item of food consisting of two pieces of bread with meat. And, and that's, did you look that's a hot dog. I did. I did. I, <laughs> I Googled define sandwich. I love it. That's great. Well, I also like that, you know, we, we had, um, like, three people here during it, you know. You got to, we got to your little one which is always good i mean again congratulations you are a maternity leave so congrats oh you. can you hear her that's okay no 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 don't worry about it like it's all good um you celebrate baby cries are, good, are good things especially considering your journey i think um if if any uh baby cries are left in there i will gladly leave them it's a good thing it's a good it's a you're you know your your road and your journey is is one that is probably similar for some people that they can relate to in some ways. I think that crosses the spectrum once you get into that realm of addiction, whether or not, you know, like you said, you turn, you, you identify uh, or a person identifies as an addict, the people you meet along the way in terms of your recovery kind of help you to, to figure out maybe who you sort of relate to or, or you find similarities with. So uh, Mm -hmm. it's, it's definitely an interesting journey. I thank you for being here with me, taking the time to, to share your journey. I think it's super important and very, very, I don't know, I guess it just, it, it, like you said, it, it paints this real picture of how this can happen, how it can spiral out of control and how there is hope on the other side. Well, thank you. I, I really appreciate you. You know, when I, when I responded and, and, you know, kind of said, Oh, I'd love to, to come on and, and kind of be a voice for this. I was so, so happily and very glad and surprised that you, you know, responded back that you would love to have me on the show. It's, it's great to be able to, you know, have this kind of platform and, and that you're providing this for people is, is amazing. And I just, I really appreciate you allowing me to tell my story and to, Give me the opportunity to maybe reach out to someone and, and connect with with someone. If one person that hears this identifies and can relate and can, you know, get help from this in, in one way or another, then I uh, feel like I've done my job. And I am just very, very grateful to have to have the opportunity to do that and to reach out to others and to have my voice be heard in um in a way that you have allowed it to be heard with unbiased and no judgment and just kind of allowing me to say what, what I have to say and to tell my journey. That's 
It's been wonderful. I, I really appreciate it.